0: upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the matured grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Lord, I just ask that you bless our time, that you give us hearts to believe what we see and what you have said, that you Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we may in a better way glorify you and be your ambassadors. And in Jesus' holy name I pray, amen. Uh, This this is a parable, this is a word picture that that, uh, is a depiction of spiritual truth. There are four elements to this parable. Uh, The first element is the man uh, who sows. The second element is the seed that he sows. The third element is the uh, soil upon which he sows. And I couldn't find an S word for harvest. So the fourth element is the harvest. If you can come up with an S word for harvest, I'll give you a dollar. But I couldn't figure one out. So let's let's consider these things. Let's begin with the sower. Uh, the, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. This is the Christian who proclaims the gospel. Please don't get hung up on the word proclaim. You could substitute the word evangelize or share the gospel or witness. The important thing isn't the word we use to describe the activity. The important thing is that the gospel itself is complete when we present it. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. The, the foremost evangelist in the New Testament period is the apostle Paul. He reached out to Jews. We're told in the book of Acts that when he came into a new city, he went to the synagogue first. Uh, he was in, in one synagogue for three weeks before they threw him out, and he went to the Gentiles. I think if Paul had gone into a city and the synagogue let him stay for three months, he would have done that because he was, he was absolutely convinced, according to what we see in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says this. He says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So a sinner has to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. But they can't call, or they won't call if they don't believe. They won't believe if they don't hear. They won't hear unless somebody tells them. And that someone has to be sent. That someone has to go with some measure of authority. We don't just say, you know, I think I'd like to tell people about this. It's not like when I got my Instapot and and threw it up on... I don't know, Twitter or Facebook, and said, boy, Instapots are great. It's, it's not this voluntary thing. We need a commission because behind that commission comes with authority. So the Great Commission gives us that authority. Are you sent to proclaim the gospel? If you're a Christian, yes, you are. It's a standing order. Um, Duane was in, was in the Air Force. Do you remember the 11 standing orders, Duane? No, I asked in Creighton last week. Nobody remembered there. The, the first order is to take charge of this post and all government property in view. There are 11 standing orders that are that are true for all five branches of the military, coast guard included. Every member of the of the armed forces is expected to know those standing orders and to carry them out without being told constantly. Well, there's some standing orders that we have as Christians, and one of those is to be an ambassador for Christ. That's another title for evangelism. So, you're sent now we've laid that to rest. Let's talk about the seed. Let's talk about the seed. The sower plants the seed. The evangelist proclaims the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. That, that's all the evangelist does. That's the only message. It's the only message we bring to the world. Uh, nothing else. The gospel is the means by which sinners who are in rebellion against God and facing judgment are reconciled to God in peace and love, and friendship. There's no point in telling anybody anything else about who God is or what he has done if we are withholding the gospel because none of the other things will make any sense and they can't appropriate those things if they're not in Christ. A partial gospel is is not a gospel at all. So as we think about the gospel, as we think about the seed, it's it's necessary that we, we understand it clearly. Uh, R.C. Sproul put it this way. The gospel is a three-part message. Who is Jesus Christ? What did Jesus do? And how do we benefit from it? And why Jesus did it is contained in the what did he do? So who is Jesus Christ? That's a, a simple question. Colossians 1.15-18 gives us a really condensed answer. You can go all through scripture and see who Jesus is. You can't go to a lot of verses Or a lot of passages that pack so much into such a small space. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And so as as you think about the the first aspect of the gospel, who is Jesus? Write this reference down in the front front of your Bible. If you want to memorize it, that would be awesome. We'll talk about that toward the end of the message. But at least write down the reference. It's really important we understand that the gospel doesn't begin with us. That's something else Justin was talking about when I came in. Good job, brother. Good job. The gospel doesn't begin with us. The gospel doesn't begin with, would you like to have a happy life? The gospel begins with, there is a God who has created all things, who deserves all glory. And he requires it of all his creation. And mankind, uniquely within his creation, has offended him, and in his lost state is unable to glorify him. We have to begin with Jesus. The second part of the gospel is what did Jesus do? Uh, I don't know why I got that there, but we'll just kind of move on. What What did Jesus do? Do uh, you remember the campaign with the wristbands, WWJD? What would Jesus do? It's a, it's a wonderful question. Uh, it, it comes from the, the old book, In His Steps, which is an interesting book about a, a liberal, complacent pastor, and during a sermon one day, a, a bum walks in the back and speaks to the people and talks about how much they have shunned him and rejected him and shown him no kindness and no love, and I think in the book he just dies there. And the pastor is so stricken by this, he he decides... He would face every situation by asking the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? The problem with that thinking is that it's not the right question. The right question is not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? That's the question that we have to ask. What would Jesus do presents Jesus as a model for moral behavior. What did Jesus do presents Jesus as the historic savior. So Paul says this. In 1 Corinthians fifteen three and 4, you can write this down too. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There's the why. And he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what Jesus did. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is only one Savior. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. He took their guilt upon himself. He suffered their punishment. And then by grace through faith, when we believe, he grants us his righteousness. It's called the divine exchange. Why can we come boldly before the throne of grace in time of need to find mercy and grace to help in time of need? We can come because Jesus, the high priest, has granted us his righteousness. The keys that Jesus has, I I don't want to over illustrate this, but the, the keys that Jesus has that led him as close as possible to the Father have been given to us by his righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's not your ability to pray. It's not your ability to memorize scripture or understand theology or avoid temptation. It's a gift of him. The third part of the gospel is how do we benefit? Well, we benefit by grace through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as as a result of, of works so that no one may boast. This is not a gift of God like was given to Peter, remember Peter came to Jesus and said, the people are asking whether or not you pay your taxes. And Jesus says, yeah, I don't have to pay taxes really because I'm the master, not the servant. But in order to keep everybody happy, go fishing, you'll catch a fish, the fish will have a coin in its mouth, and that'll be enough for my taxes and your taxes. But Peter could have gone down, taken that coin, and thrown it away. The coin's a gift. That gift has to be received, Right? But that's not how the gospel comes as a gift. The gospel comes as a gift like life came to Lazarus. Jesus didn't say to Lazarus, now that you're dead, you're wrapped up, you've been in there for four or five days, you're really stinking good, would you like to receive a gift? When he gave the gift, the gift was given. And he gives us faith in exactly the same way. How do we benefit from what Jesus did? We benefit by the grace of God, not through our own merit. We benefit by believing in Jesus Christ. So there's there's the gospel in a nutshell, in in a sense. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Which includes why he did it. And how do we benefit? The, The third element of this parable is the soil. And the soil, obviously, is a person. Now, earlier on in Mark, Jesus... Uh, In Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives the foundational parable that establishes the pattern for all the parables in this chapter. He's so serious about this, by the way. If you look in verse 13, after he tells the first parable, he says to his disciples, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So that first one really is the key for what follows. And Jesus in that parable says there's four parables kinds of soil there's impenetrable soil there's impassioned soil there's insincere soil and there's implanted soil that that i couldn't find an i word that really made me happy but implanted is as good as i can get the first kind of of soil the first kind of person is the one who hears the gospel and it makes no impact Jesus described it as seed falling next to the road and the birds pick it up and off it goes and there's never any impact. So this person is somebody who hears the gospel but they're so hardened to it that there is zero response. (coughs) Satan is able to sweep the gospel away from them as easily as birds pick up corn at a farm road intersection that spills out of a grain truck. The second person is the, the one who has a quick, impassioned... Response to the gospel, he says that this is the the person where uh, the the seed falls and immediately it springs up because it has no depth of soil. And in his explanation, he says immediately they receive it with joy. Boof, just huge growth. But he says uh, they have no firm root in themselves; it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, they fall away. So this is the person who responds to the gospel with joy. And this is what I think. I I can't really prove this, so I'm speculating. I'd like to tell you when I'm guessing. But I think that it's joy for its own sake. I don't think it's joy that they found Christ or that they were found by him. I think it's joy for the sake of having joy. Jesus makes them happy. The idea of Jesus makes them happy. But as soon as Jesus stops making them happy, making them feel good, they're off to find something else. As soon as the pressure gets to the point where it's no longer about their emotions but about commitment, they're gone. The third person is insincere. Uh, Jesus said, other seed, other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns came up, choked it, and it yielded no crop. No crop. And in verses 18 and 19, he, he says what he means. Others are the, the ones on, upon whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. They're insincere because Jesus is just part of who they are. They're they're happy to have him kind of sitting on their mantle, but there's there's no depth. There's no commitment to them. And I think it's important that we understand he describes three different situations that, uh, that dilute the impact of the gospel upon their lives and prevent it from bearing fruit. The first one is the worries of the world. It's just the, the common things that we all deal with. But obviously, some have far more trouble than we do. He also says the deceitfulness of riches will choke it out. Because obviously, when you come to Christ, when Jesus is Lord of your life, he rules in your life. And ultimately, he says, the desires for other things enter in. And those those may be physical things. They may be material things. They may also be emotional things. Now, before we go to the fourth one, I just want to stop for a second. And I want to point out that the impenetrable person is untouched by the gospel. And the impassioned person is only temporarily touched by the gospel. But the insincere person can live as a religious person their entire life they can remain moral they can remain religious their their whole life long jesus told another parable he said the kingdom of god is like a man who planted wheat in his field and the next day his servants came to him and said overnight the enemy came and sowed tares darnel which is a a a plant that looks remarkably like wheat And there's a particular form of of Darnell that exists in the Middle East that is so much like wheat that the only way to tell the difference is that at the harvest time, one has grain and one doesn't. And so Jesus basically using that that picture, I think, is saying, this is the person who is religious their whole life long. On the outside, they look good. They've got this moral compass. They've got this outward morality But inside, they're dead. Inside, they're absolutely fruitless. That's why we can't assume that somebody who is religious is right with God. That's why we have to look for more than morality and and church going. We're looking for true faith in Christ. The downside, the difficulty, is that we risk offending people. We speak to somebody who has been a a member of a church for 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years. They were baptized into that church. Their grandparents were baptized into that church. And we say to them, you're a good person. And you're, you're, you're obviously committed to your church. But I don't see any fruit of salvation in your life. I don't see sorrow over sin. I don't see love for Jesus. I don't see a hunger for the word or regard for the word of God. And our concern, wouldn't it be, we're going to hurt their feelings. We're going to offend them. Part of what's required of us as ambassadors of Christ is that we put their eternal destiny over their temporary feelings. And I think I can promise you this. I think I can promise you that if you speak to somebody who, is, who, who you may think is unsaved but is actually saved on the day of judgment, they won't be mad. Not one person will enter eternity offended that Justin suggested that they didn't know him, didn't know the Lord. And on the other hand, we may actually be part of the process of seeing the gospel implanted in a genuine way in their life. The fourth kind of person is, is good soil. The, the, by the power of the Spirit, the gospel is implanted in their heart and soul and mind, and and converted, and their conversion becomes clear. They begin bearing the, the fruit of conversion, repentance from sin and dead works, faith toward Christ, hope in Christ. They know that they're forgiven and cleansed. They know that they're at peace with God. They know that they're born again and converted, that the old things are gone, new things have come. They love the Lord. They love his people. They look for the Lord's return. They long for others to know the joy and peace that they have found. There's just something different about them. They're not just the same person who's decided to become religious. There's a transformation on the inside of them. If we compare them to the first three types of soil, Satan can't steal the gospel from them because he has no access to their heart. The sun can't wither the gospel with them. Because it is deep within them and it's, it's protected by the power of God. And the idols of the world can't dispel faith in Christ. And in fact, when somebody comes to Christ, we can just turn off the recording and be honest for a second. When we come to faith in Christ, we often have a lot of residual junk that just has to be dealt with over time. But as we come to those things, as we come to those idols and those ideas and those thoughts, and we compare them to Jesus, we really immediately see that that thing is dead and empty and it can't help us. And we learn how to drop those things over time. So what's our part in all of this? Well, our part in all of this is the the, the sharing of the gospel. It's, It's the only thing that we must do. It's the only thing that we can do. When we're faced with somebody who doesn't know the Lord, no amount of education changes what the gospel is. I have a master's degree in in ministry. Uh, Steve Lawson, Dr. Steve Lawson, I think, has multiple doctorates, and our granddaughter Lucy is still in first grade. The gospel is the same gospel for all of us, that doesn't change. If you look later in Acts chapter 4, you'll see as this, Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 tell the story of Peter and John going to the temple to pray, healing the man who is crippled, teaching in the name of Jesus, being arrested, being released, being rearrested. And when they're rearrested in the middle of Acts chapter 4, (coughs) Luke writes that the the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, looking at them were amazed because they realized that, that Peter and John were untaught, and uneducated sharing christ is it just belongs at the level of untaught uneducated it's a simple message who is jesus christ what did he do and why and how do we benefit you don't need any advanced degrees to do that everything else depends entirely upon the work of god it depends on the Father who elects those whom he would save, the Son who have died to to obtain their salvation, and the Spirit who applies it to their lives. Now another question that came up or that had come up when I came in this morning was was the trouble that we feel when people don't respond, when there's a lack of response, when we have taken the time to try and get the gospel right. We haven't been forceful with it. We haven't been arrogant or angry with it. We've been sincere. We, we've tenderly pled with that person. And, and either it makes no impact at all, or it has a quick flash of, of something and then is gone. Or it just kind of gets absorbed. And, and, yeah, they kind of took that tract, but they stuck it in their wallet with all the other junk in their life. And it they can say, well, I've, I've got it. I've got it. But they don't have it. We assume that if we tell the story right, that if we use the right words and the right illustrations, if we have the right approach, if we make it sound attractive, if we really sell it well, most people would would agree. And we forget that there's a spiritual battle taking place. I've, I've, I've converted people from PC to Mac. Not everybody, but I've had a fair amount of success in converting people from PC to Mac. But for the most part anymore, there isn't this built-in rejection of any particular platform. And you can have the conversation. But when we come to somebody who does not know Christ with the gospel, we're not approaching an innocent victim of circumstance, but a sinful rebel who is at war with the most high God and faced with his word, even when his word promises forgiveness and reconciliation and peace, the rebel will rebel. The, the truth is most would rather die with their pride intact than repent and live because of the nature of of the spiritual battle that takes place. This is what Jesus said to his disciples, and he says the same thing to us. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So when, when you have taken the time to share the gospel with somebody, if they flash in anger or they casually dismiss it, they're not angry at you not angry at me they're not dismissing you They're not dismissing me they're dismissing the Savior it's a it's a terribly crucial moment for people and the reality is is that evangelism can serve as kind of a litmus test for who belongs to the Lord and who does not those who do not belong to him will never keep his word those who do belong to him will come to keep his word in his time according to his purposes So let's talk about the harvest. I got 14 minutes, 12 minutes before Justin has to leave. Let's talk about the harvest. I love it when somebody hears the gospel and they're curious and they're interested and they take it in and they respond and they believe and you begin to see fruit in their lives. Some people can point to a day when that happens. I can point to a day, August 13th, 1978, when it happened for me. Um, I used to know, I was driving in the mountains, I used to know the road marker. I could really pinpoint it, but many people can't pinpoint a moment. And some evangelistic approaches will say, if you can't pick a moment when you believed, you didn't believe. It's like, but I'm not saved by that moment. I'm saved by the presence of ongoing faith and growth. And for some people, it's a very subtle process. And like C.S. Lewis, who searched for years for truth, kept coming to the gospel and rejecting it and going to something else and coming back and considering and then going to something else. He says, one day I didn't believe. And then in the next breath, I believed. See, that's not because he convinced himself or somebody really did a good job. That's because the spirit of God gave him faith. When the spirit of God gives us faith, it doesn't mean that he gives us the ability to believe. It means he gives us the belief. I know that's my daughter, Grace. I know that. If I came in and said, I, I really don't recognize you, you wouldn't say, well, yeah, he hasn't chosen to. You would say, uh, what's going on? You'd get worried. When can we expect the harvest in someone's life? I'll tell you exactly when. There's no way to tell. There's no way to tell. There's a pastor in Virginia named, by the name of Jordan Standridge. He writes on a, a blog called The Cripple Gate, and this week I read this. He, he had gone to a former con- communist country in Eastern Europe, he didn't name the country, um, on an evangelism trip, and they ended up in some remote villages. So he, re- he wrote this. As I entered the first house and sat in the chair to begin, we were told by the father and daughter that they had never spoken to anyone about the gospel before. The daughter was in her 70s, and the father was 99. As we talked, it seemed as if the scales were falling from his eyes as the realization of his own sin filled his eyes with tears. It was like talking to the thief on the cross. He simply asked God to forgive him of his sin and give him a new heart. 99 years old, nobody had ever talked to him about the gospel. 99 years old, and he becomes a new creature in Christ. That's a quick harvest. That's a thief on the cross type of harvest. And even though nobody had ever talked to him about Christ before, we know that the Holy Spirit had been prepping his heart, that he knew that there was something wrong with his life. And when they talked to him about sin, he said, that's what's wrong. And he knew that there had to be hope. And when they talked to him about Jesus, he said, that's the hope. The Spirit of God had done the work. But on the other hand, it might take years of conversation. One of my professors in seminary was named Gary McIntosh. Gary was an evangelist and was teaching evangelism, and he had done a study. And in his study, he learned that it took an average of 10 gospel conversations for a person to come to Christ. That's not spiritual conversations, quote-unquote. That's not nice conversations. It's not personal relationship. It's gospel conversations, an average of 10. It didn't often happen with the same evangelist. There were often many people involved. And it didn't happen in a week or two. Sometimes it was years or even decades that went by. By the providence of God, the gestation time for the gospel differs for every person. So let's, let's bring this home kind of quickly here. As we live in faith and submission to the Lord, we have to trust that he's going to bring people across our path that he wants us to share with and look for opportunities to share we also have to keep it, keep it in mind that he might send us in search of people who need to hear. Uh, we know a man, David Kaufman. David is a an evangelist. He lives in Nashville. He and his wife and family live in an apartment building. There are 20 different languages spoken in that apartment building. He has constant opportunities to see new people who are in an unfamiliar setting and to invite them and to start having gospel conversations. We know a man named Roy Rohrer. Roy lives in Winneton and farms, and Roy probably hasn't seen somebody he doesn't know in two years. So we all have to be able to share the gospel without picking up and becoming vocational evangelists. Otherwise, what somebody's talking about is going to fail. You have to figure it out for your context in life and the people that you come across. But in the meantime, we can be praying. We can pray for our own preparedness and make sure that we really know the gospel. By by the way, let's not think that in, in the parable... The man who cast soil upon the seed went to his barn, grabbed a handful of seed, walked out to the field, scattered it, walked back to his barn, grabbed a handful. Even at that time, he would have had a seed bag, right? He can't hold it all. I can't memorize it all, but I have a seed bag. And so you can write down references in the front of your Bible. And so somebody, you're you're talking to somebody and you say, you need a Savior. And they say, I'm not such a bad person. You can just open it up, see... See, uh, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, and turn over there, but the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we don't think that that's very powerful. The Word of God is tremendously powerful. Pray for your own preparedness. Pray for opportunities. Pray that the Lord would would grant you clarity and simplicity and courage to tell the whole gospel, the reality of judgment, as well as the promise of forgiveness. Pray for the lost. That the Lord would would call them and open their eyes and grant them repentance and faith and convert them. When I pray for my grandkids, I pray that Jesus would look in his book of life and find their names. I don't know. My deep abiding hope is that their names are written there. We have to pray for those who are lost. And, And finally, we have to trust that the Lord's intention to save is absolute, that he will not fail to save his people. It doesn't depend on your perfect presentation. Just tell them the truth. Let the Lord bear the fruit, bring the fruit he wants to bring in that time. Father, we thank you for your word and for this parable. I thank you for the encouragement that I've had this week in studying it and teaching it. And I ask, Lord, that you would encourage all of us this reality that the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed, goes about his day and the seed grows and he doesn't have any idea how. We share the gospel with people and we have no idea what you do with it then. (coughs) But we know that you have your way. And we know that you glorify your name. We long to be seeing results. We long to see people believe and repent and trust in you. We long to know that what we're doing is not uh, spinning our wheels or wasting our time. In most cases, we simply have to wait till the end of the age and the harvest to see what the efforts were and what the results were. But we ask you for a gift. We ask you to show us sometimes the good results so that we would be encouraged in the day we thank you again we thank you for this morning and ask for your blessing as we go fill our hearts with the gospel because we need it every day and fill our mouths with the gospel to share with those in need and in your name jesus we pray amen